0: Welcome to the CCF Iowa podcast. We're going to be continuing our For Everyone series where we've been going through the book of Matthew, and we come now to the part of the narrative that's about Jesus' crucifixion. Um, But I'm actually going to take a little bit of a different tactic, and we're going to take the crucifixion account from the book of Mark. Now, there's a couple reasons why I want to use the book of Mark instead of Matthew, but first I want to say that Uh, kind of as a reminder that the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were were written by different people, um, generally to different audiences and for different purposes. A lot of people will take the Gospel accounts and try to harmonize them, which means they try to stick them all together into one narrative and see what that says or what that looks like. Um, I don't have any problem with anyone trying to harmonize the Gospel accounts, but I don't necessarily think that that's what the authors intended for their stories to do. I think each author went about, I know the story of Jesus. um, I was there, or I knew people that were there, or I've talked to people that were there. And so there's important things that I want to record. But there's also things that I want to point out and a a particular flair or spin that I want to put on it in order to emphasize different things about Jesus, about his teachings, about who he was. And so Matthew, as we've said before is uh, is a gospel account that's written to Jews, and it's primarily for the purpose of helping those Jews to see that the story of Christ, the gospel, is one that is for everyone. It's, it's for the outsider, as well as the person who grew up uh, Jewish and knowing who what it meant to be part of God's chosen people. And so I think that's really the emphasis that Matthew's trying to take throughout his story, But when you get to the crucifixion account, for one, that's something fairly significant, which is why it shows up in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll start to notice some differences uh, in those four Gospels about the approaches that they take. And that kind of, to me, is is one of those indicators that the, the Gospel writers are trying to say different things about the stories and the things that happen in Jesus' life. And so they definitely use the crucifixion story for that. Now, I, I haven't been able to do as much study in the book of Matthew and his particular spin on the crucifixion account to really dig in deep. And that since that's what I really like to do, especially when we get to stories that we're maybe a little bit more familiar with, I really want to dig in and find other things from it. And since I haven't been able to just unlock that part of Matthew, I'm going to turn to a book, a gospel that I'm more familiar with the way that they use the crucifixion account, And that's partially due to other people that have taught me and poured into my life and and scholars. And and we're specifically using the research of a scholar named uh, Thomas E. Schmidt. Um, And he's a guy that just kind of wrote and made these connections that I'm going to talk about here in just a second. So just know that I'm really indebted to his work um, in in this lesson. But we're going to look at Mark chapter 15, which is where that crucifixion account is found. Um, but before we dig into that, I want to tell you a little bit about history, because that's what I do. Uh, I really like history, and I, I think what it, what we can learn from it really helps us understand some of the different things that are going on, and especially in this context, I think can help us understand some of the things that were happening with the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, historically, uh, there's... Uh, Rome had emperors that, you know, they're kind of their their kings, their rulers, their leaders. And when the emperors would have a coronation ceremony, so whenever a new emperor would come to power, there was uh, kind of nine different things that they would do as part of that coronation. Um, the one that we have the most records about and the most information about is actually the coronation of Nero, um, which, depending on how you date the gospel accounts um it's very likely that when when the book of mark is written the coronation of nero would have happened like within the decade, and so something that could very much be fresh on on Mark's mind as he's writing the gospel, but definitely on the minds of his readers. Um, so I already said a little bit about how Matthew was written and who his audience was. Mark, um, there, there's a lot within the book of Mark that's some contextual clues, but it seems to me that Mark is the one that's the most Western-driven, uh, Western-directed of the New Testament books. Um, And I think the reason that's because the audience that Mark is trying to reach with his gospel is actually a Roman audience. He's wanting to tell those people about who Jesus is. And so it's got a particular Roman feel. Some people talk about how Mark is the action gospel because it's just immediately this happens and immediately they go and do this. And and so it's kind of got that action movie feel where you're just moving from each point of action and event to the next one. And there's not necessarily spending a whole lot of time like giving the details about what's happening or what the characters are thinking. You're just moving from action scene to action scene to action scene. And and because of that, it seems to really play an appeal to a Roman audience, I think. Um, and so there's a lot there that I think the purpose of Mark is to appeal to Romans. And, and so when, as I put together this whole Nero's coronation um, with Jesus' crucifixion thing and, and the ways that those stories kind of overlap or seem to fit a similar pattern. Um, I, I think it makes more sense as to with Mark communicating to a Roman audience what he's trying to do. So again, let me get back into that history mode and talk about how kind of what Nero's coronation looked like. You have a gathering of the Praetorian Guard. That's the very first step as part of the coronation of the Roman Emperor. Second is they would take royal robes and they would place them upon the emperor. They would give him a wreath as a crown that he would wear and they would also hand him a a scepter and so he would be adorned as the emperor is supposed to be adorned. And then they would then, number three thing that happens is they lead him on a procession. Now this procession would be lined with altars of incense. And so there'd be all of these just kind of uh, sensory experiences. You would see the emperor decked out. You would see the Praetorian guard kind of flanking him. and, And you would smell this incense that they were burning. All these things that just express the power, the majesty, the royalty of the Roman emperor. Then what happened is Caesar, um, another name for the Roman emperor, would be followed by a sacrifice, generally a sacrifice. It's an animal sacrifice that, that he's specifically chosen to somehow represent him. Uh, we, we do have enough uh, information to know that different emperors chose different animals as their sacrifice. Some would have like a ram, some would have uh, maybe a goat. You know, there's, there's all the different kind of animals they would choose, and they would choose them for specific reasons. Nero happened to have a bull. And not only would they have that animal following them, but the emperor himself would also, besides his scepter that he's already holding, he would carry the instrument of sacrifice, whatever they were going to use to slaughter that animal. Then as they're going through the streets of Rome, they, they eventually, number five, they arrive at Capitoline Hill. It's kind of the biggest, tallest, most important hill in Rome. Uh, Rome is known as the City of Seven Hills uh, because it was built quite literally on seven hilltops. Capitoline Hill happens to have the, the temple upon it, the, the main temple where, where worship of the Roman gods would occur. And so this is the place where the coronation is going to happen um, because there's so much of Roman um, statecraft is tied up into Roman religion and all that kind of overlaps And so you've got the emperor is going to be crowned, and the coronation is going to happen at the temple on top of Capitoline Hill. Now, Capitoline Hill, that word Capitoline actually is translated to head. It essentially is Head Hill. And the reason, uh, according to Roman myth and legend, that it was named Head Hill is because when they were in the process of building all the important buildings in Rome, and especially the temple that was built on Capitoline Hill... They were digging up for the foundation, and when they dug up, they actually found the head of Romulus. If you know your Roman myth, Romulus is one of two brothers, Romulus and Remus, but he becomes the founder of Rome. He fa- he's the guy who starts the Roman Empire, and as they're excavating this hill in order to build the foundations of the temple, they actually find, apparently perfectly preserved, again, it's a myth, um, Romulus' head, and so that's why they call it Capitoline Hill, Head hill, because they found Romulus's head there. They build their temple there, and, and that's kind of like the big, significant, most important hill in Rome is Head Hill. At, at Head Hill, um, before heading up into the temple, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. Now the significance of that is that myrrh is one of the most expensive perfumes that exists at the time. And so essentially they would mix in this perfume into the wine to basically make it more expensive. And regal and, you know, all those kind of things. And what, uh, after getting this chalice of this wine mixed with myrrh, the emperor would actually pour it out. um, And he would refuse to drink it uh, because he was trying to show his own preeminence. That I'm, I'm so important, I'm so royal, that like this thing that is so expensive and so rare is just a trifle to me. And so I'm just going to pour it out, because I'm the emperor, and I've got all things going for me, whoop-de-doo. Then they have the animals been following Caesar along on this processional. They would then kill the animal, so Nero sacrifices the bull. And then they bring up uh, this, this grouping of prisoners... And then the emperor would go down this line of prisoners and he would just pick them out randomly, who was going to live and who was going to die. Again, the importance of this is signifying that the emperor has the power over life and death. He gets to decide, according to Roman standards, Roman rule of law, who lives and who dies. And so he displays that very directly with this group of prisoners that they bring forward as part of his coronation ceremony. After he performs that, this is number seven in the nine things we're going through, the emperor ascends the steps of the temple. And not only is he going up the steps, but he has some people lined up around him. On his right would be the high priest. They actually have 24 recognized Roman religions at this point in time. And there's there's a high priest for each one of those religions. And so on his right, he has the 24 high priests of all the Roman religions. But he is at the head of that line because he's the emperor of Rome. And in a lot of places, he's actually worshiped as a god on top of that. And then on his left, he has his military commanders, all the important guys that are commanding the important legions of Rome. Those guys would be flanking him on his left. And so as a reminder, again, the emperor is the head of the Roman state. He's the head of the Roman religion. He's the head of the Roman military. Uh, there's crowds that would be gathered, and they would proclaim him as Lord and God. They would sing his praises um, because, again, they're worshiping him as a god. So they're saying, Caesar is our God, Caesar is our God, and and singing their praises out loud. And then the ninth and final thing that would happen is they've got all this stage set. They've got everything. All the important people are there. They've sacrificed the bull. They've done All of these things to show how incredibly powerful the Roman Emperor is and then they would stand and they would wait for a sign from the heavens now when Nero is up there there happens to be a lunar eclipse that occurs and so his coronation comes down to this he's gone through the streets he's gotten his wine he's he's gotten his pronounced life and death and he's been worshiped as a god and then an eclipse happens now, uh, there's reason to believe that you know there's there's good record for this. Uh, the, the the kind of the thing about this is that sometimes we think of ancient peoples who would see eclipses or comets or all these kind of things and they'd be like, oh my goodness, look at what the gods are doing, blah blah blah. Yeah, that was the case for the normal person, but a lot of these important figures of state, they had astronomers um, or astrologers, or at the very least, they had people who spent a whole lot of time looking at the stars, studying the heavens, and they would kind of figure out. Hey, this important astrological event is, is going to occur. There's going to be something significant that happens on that day. Hey, Nero, uh, you have the ability to schedule your coronation. It needs to be soon. But we found a day where there's going to be a lunar eclipse. So that'd be a really good day to do your coronation. And so it's all kind of scripted. It's planned out in advance. They know that the heavens are going to confirm this and have this sign. And so... This has all been planned out. It all works according to plan. Nero gets his coronation. He he becomes the emperor. And all the people were astounded and amazed. So we've got that story of Nero's coronation, of what it looks like when Roman emperors become the emperor, are crowned that way. And then we have this story, this interesting way that Mark recounts what happens for Jesus Jesus' crucifixion. So this is Mark 15, and we're going to start in verse 16. It says, The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium. He points out that there's soldiers going into the palace and making sure that it's noted that it's called the praetorium. So you could make an argument that these soldiers going to the praetorium would in this way represent a praetorian guard. And they called together the whole company of soldiers. Why do they need a whole company of soldiers in order to just execute Jesus? I don't know, but maybe Mark's creating this sense of pageantry, the sense of something's been scripted here, something different is going on when Jesus heads to the cross. Verse 17 says, They put a purple robe on him, a royal-type robe, then twisted together a crown of thorns, a wreath of sorts, to place it on his head as a crown. They began to call out to him, Hail, king of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff. a staff is kind of like a scepter. And spit on him, and falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, as if he were something more important than what they believe him to be. And when they had mocked him, they took off their purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. And so... We start to see the formation of this procession. Verse 21, it says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. You've got a a procession that's happening. You've got someone carrying the cross. as it's also known, the instrument of... Of sacrifice. Now things are a little flipped here because Jesus is this emperor character and yet he's also the sacrificial lamb. He is his own animal sacrifice. We've got some different things going on. Verse 22 says they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Um, there's another way to translate Golgotha, not to skull, but you can actually just translate it to head because those those root words have some of the same uh, the words have the same root. There, uh, the the word for skull in Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek and all those places is the same is the root word that means head. And so the idea of it being the place of the skull, it also is, you know, uh, head hill of sorts. Verse 23, uh, this is the blatantly obvious one that I think would have, if the audience hadn't caught it yet and when they're hearing Mark's gospel, I think they catch it here. Because it says, they then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Remember, the whole reason to mix myrrh with wine is to make it ridiculously expensive. And it says, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They don't offer people wine mixed with myrrh. In the other gospel accounts, it talks about them offering him vinegar when he's on the cross, not before he goes up on the cross. And, and that's the only thing that is ever offered to Jesus that's similar in the other gospel accounts. And yet Mark says this wine mixed with myrrh thing, but Jesus refuses it. It's poured out, much like the emperor refused, in order to show his own preeminence. Verse 24, and they crucified him. The sacrificial lamb is sacrificed here. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. He's shown and proclaimed to be a king. They crucified two robbers on with him, one on his right and one on his left, as he ascends up to this higher place. He has someone on his right and someone on his left. Maybe not as this impressive flanking of high priests and military commanders, but, but there's still someone on his right and his left. Now those who pass by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. We don't have a crowd singing praises, declaring him as Lord and God. We just have people mocking him as they pass by. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And finally, step nine we had for the emperor was that everyone waits for a sign from the heavens. Nero's eclipse at the sixth hour darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour and at the ninth hour jesus cried out in a loud voice eloi eloi lama sabachthani," which means my god my god why have you forsaken me and at verse 37 it says with a loud cry jesus breathed his last the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry, and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. So finally we do have one person who seems to recognize what's going on and proclaims him as the Son of God. Jesus' crucifixion seems to mirror like directly, like like it was intentionally written to look this way from Mark's gospel, for Jesus' crucifixion to look, look a whole lot like the emperor's coronation. So why are we doing, why is Mark doing this? I think he's trying to tell us something. I think he's trying to tell his audience something. When Jesus went to be crucified, he was really going to be declared king of the universe. Instead of just a death on the cross, we have the coronation of the king. And so Mark lines it up in his gospel to be that account. To be the ceremony, the processional, all the important things that happen for the king of the world to be declared. And so the death of Jesus, the crucifixion, it's an upside down kind of thing. That instead of just ending what Jesus was doing on earth, it actually sets off a whole new chain reaction of things. And Jesus is crowned as king of this world. And he ascends after this, after his resurrection. He ascends to his throne in heaven and sits at the right hand of God. This is what I think it means for Jesus to have been crucified. There's there's other things going on. There's lots of theological examples that are given in, in Paul's letters and other places about what's happening during the crucifixion, about our sins, and, and all those other things. I'm not trying to take away from any of that, but I'm trying to say what Mark was saying about his crucifixion, and that's when Jesus was crowned king. That's what happens here. Because there's a thread that goes throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It's found in the Gospel of Mark. It's found in other places as well, where Jesus says, I'm here to bring the kingdom, my kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And so Mark decides to say, yeah, the kingdom of heaven stuff is really important. It's really interesting. It's really cool. And so I'm going to show my readers, my audience, the people who hear my gospel, that when Jesus was crucified was when he truly became king. And then Mark writes this to a Roman audience so that the Romans would know those Gentiles, those oppressors, those people that the Jews would want to have nothing to do with, they would know that Jesus is truly king and that they would worship him too and recognize him too as the son of God like the centurion did. I think this is the message, one of the messages that we can take about Jesus' crucifixion that when Jesus died, he became our king. Hey, thanks for spending time with us today. If you have any questions about what you heard or any interest in learning more about CCF in Iowa, then please email us at ccf.uiowa at gmail.com and we would love to get you connected.